Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So this season we talked about evangelism. Uh, we've hit some high-level conversations. In this episode, we want to deal with some more practical issues, how to share your faith and how to learn to do it effectively. We're here with a friend of mine, Dr. Tim Booker. Dr. Booker is one of my favorite people in the whole world and uh, love spending time with him. And, um, you know, as we, as we think about uh, evangelism this season, one of the things that we want to introduce our listeners to are some resources. And Dr. Booker has written, um, has written a book, Invitation to Evangelism, Sharing the Gospel with Compassion and Conviction. So, uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Joy to be with you. I appreciate it. And Dr. Booker serves as uh, as the Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and the Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So how long have you been doing that job? 27 years. Wow. Okay. So can you say just a bit about uh, kind of what, what is that led you to teach evangelism on a seminary campus? What, you know, what, what lands a guy in that role? Well, it's a great question. It really goes back to my conversion. I was converted uh, early in my college experience. I was invited to go to a weekend retreat. The topic happened to be evangelism. So I tell people I started witnessing before I learned that most Christians didn't do that sort of thing. (laughs) And it was at that conference that I was challenged to share the gospel, write down the names of three lost friends on the campus. They gave us three gospel booklets, said, pray that in the next 30 days, God will give you an opportunity to share them. And again, I was such a new believer. I didn't realize that you didn't actually apply anything that you learned at a conference. You just came home with your notebook and put it on the shelf with all the other notebooks. I took it seriously (laughs) and, and was able to share the gospel that next week. And so Really, for me, just in the providence of God, I received some early encouragement and training early on in my Christian life that it's like, this is what Christians do. This should be the norm. Right. And I I tend to tell when I take a student on a mission trip or uh, an evangelism experience, and I watch a student lead somebody to faith in Christ or maybe share the gospel for the first time and get the impression that the other person is actually listening, I almost want to say to them, Welcome to the other side of the fence, right? Welcome to the dark side. You'll never be the same after that experience. And so few people seem to be afraid to step across that line, but it really is a life altering experience. When you talk to somebody about the gospel and they listen and they respond, it's like your life will never be the same. Absolutely. And and just to add to that, as a brand new Christian, I went to a Christian bookstore to get a Bible and I'm looking at books there and I had no idea who these authors were, but there's a book I pulled off the shelf. It was a book by Leroy Imes, uh, vice president of the Navigators, called Winning Ways. Yep. So the very first Christian book I read was a book on evangelism. It's like God had just had a plan. That's right. The first book I read was Out of the Salt Shaker by Rebecca Pippert. So it was the same type Amen. of Amen. Uh, same type of thing. Hey, speaking of books, let's talk about your uh, your new book, uh, Invitation to Evangelism. Uh, sharing the gospel with compassion and conviction. Now you've written several, uh, several books, history of evangelism, and uh, and that. But this is a this is a different type of of book that you've written, right? 
Uh, that's correct, Scott. This is actually part of uh, Kriegel Publishers Invitation Series, mm -hmm. uh, designed to be textbooks for evangelical colleges and seminaries. And I was uh, very humbled by the fact that Kriegel approached me and asked me to write this book in their series. Usually, we're asking publishers, and, and we can wallpaper our entire house with all the rejection letters that we receive. But in this case, it was nice to be asked. So, so you write in the book that the kind of the the initial audience really is the classroom, but you you do write in the beginning that you really have a goal that the book isn't specifically just for students. It's kind of got a broader audience in mind as well, right? That's correct. I I believe that a layperson can read this book and be helped by it. I, I believe pastors can as well. Uh, I've served in 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 the in my thirty seven years of teaching. I have served as a pastor most of that time as well, staying in touch with people in churches. And so I really try and write not not for an academic ivory tower setting, but for real life. Yeah. You know, as I read through the book, I was really um, I was really struck by the fact that the book is kind of a real thorough covering of the topic of evangelism. I mean, you deal with the theology of evangelism, theology of lostness and conversion some stuff about history, and then some practical uh, practical details about evangelism. So I was working through that. As you were writing the book, what were some of the goals that you had in mind as you were thinking about uh, laying this out for students or even pastors and churches, lay people? Uh, what were some some real takeaways that you hoped the book would 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 contribute to the? To yeah, the I, I think initially just encouraging people that anyone can do evangelism. You know, this isn't something that, you know, don't try this at home, leave this for the experts. Uh, I grew up very much an introvert. In fact, if you had told me growing up that I would one day be a pastor, a professor, a public speaker, I wouldn't have known whether to laugh or cry. Uh, th this was not what I envisioned for myself. And, and I really believe if God could take a very shy Kansas farm boy and teach him how to share his faith to the point where he can then teach others. God, God can really do this in anyone's life. So that, that's really the goal is to help people overcome sort of the fear of evangelism, talk about the elephant in the room, that uh, this is something God calls all of us to do. And sometimes we just make it way too complicated. The, uh, sharing the gospel is so simple that a child can do it. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, I've written a book also on evangelism, and we try to say uh, in that book, and you make a similar point. With, you're telling your story, and you're telling how the gospel made a difference in your life, and you bring it together with the biblical story, and you just you're talking to people who need to know the difference that Jesus can make in their life, and uh, for some reason, we tend to overcomplicate that, don't we? Well, and, and I think particularly one of the great tragedies that we see in the Christian life, you would assume the longer somebody has walked with Christ, the more excited they would be about sharing their faith. But unfortunately, sometimes it seems like the opposite. It's new believers who have this zeal and, and great excitement and energy to share, and people that have been Christians for decades don't ever even open their mouth. Reminded of what Dr. Howard Hendricks uh, once asked, he said, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a new Christian, you know what his answer was What's to that? meet an old Christian, uh, <laughs> because old Christians tend to, to pour water on. Them. I'll just give a quick example. Sure. A woman that Sharon and I had the privilege of introducing to Christ uh, about six years ago. 
she came to our trunk or treat Halloween outreach at our church dressed like a witch, black cap, cape, broom, and all. We had the opportunity to meet her, share the gospel with her, and Denise put her faith in Christ. Now, if you had a list of sins, Denise could go down and probably check every one of them, but her life was radically transformed by Christ. And so in the midst of worship, we'd be singing about Christ's sacrifice and how it delivered us. And she'd just start yelling, yes, Jesus, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And this went on for a few weeks. And then every church has a keeper of the traditions. We, we have one at our church and he pulled me aside and said, pastor, I, I have a concern. This man is filled with concerns. <laughs> and he said, you need to talk to Denise. She's getting carried away. You know, she's disrupting everybody's worship. You, you need to tone her down. Wow. And I just looked at this man and said, how long have you been a follower of Christ? I just guessed 50 years. He stopped, said, yeah, I came to Christ in the military right at 50 years ago. I said, well, I've been a follower of Christ for 40 years. Shame on you. And shame on me that we're not more like Denise. Wow. We don't have to jump up and down in worship services, but Denise hadn't gotten over the fact that Jesus saved her. Yeah. And I fear that a lot of us have lost the wonder of it all. I think that's true. I, yeah. And that's a sad, a sad indictment. I think that's a, that's exactly right. So Tim, when you think about the book that you, that the, that we're talking about the introduction to evangelism, what would you, what would you say folks who would pick up the book, would should expect to gain expect to learn as they as they read through but obviously it's filled with with practical tips with training with information but what are some things that you think this is this is what you're going to look for when you're reading this book well i, I think first of all to understand what evangelism is and is not there's a lot of false conceptions out there so trying to define it uh giving a biblical basis for it that that evangelism isn't something Billy Graham invented this is God's idea and right. and God wants us to be a part of it and then just a variety of different methods and and you can take and pick those that that work for you and set aside those who don't i think of the famous story of the woman who came to DL Moody said i don't like the way you do evangelism he said well some days i'm not overly fond of my approach myself what method do you use well i don't have a method Moody said, well, I like my method a whole lot better than I like yours. There you go. Uh, so I tell people, if you don't like a method of evangelism, don't spend all your time and energy criticizing it. Uh, find something you do like and use that. And I give a variety of options in the book, something that I think will appeal to every Christian. Yeah, I think that's true. You have that whole section there that deals with every manner of, of ways to share the gospel uh, serve the gospel, explain the gospel, using track, use your testimony, all this, everything uh, is, is in here. You know, one of the things as I thought, as I read the, the book, and we think about teaching our students uh, in evangelism, and I'm not sure about you, but when I teach evangelism, I, I kind of approach it from a, a double prong, right? I want my students to learn to do personal evangelism, but also understanding that at some point they're going to serve the church. And so they absolutely. So they are, so we're teaching them to be evangelists, but also leaders in training and evangelism. Um, otherwise, we're just kind of wasting our time. That makes our seminary classes like a bigger Sunday school class or something. Yeah. So as you think about that, what are, what are some odd thoughts you have when it comes to evangelism training, equipping, teaching other people uh, to do evangelism? Yeah, Scott, I'm with you on that. In fact, in the first five minutes of the opening day of my class, 
I tell my students, I want them to listen with both ears. And here's how I describe it. With one ear, listen for where they are right now in their own experience, in their own pilgrimage of witnessing. But with the other ear, be listening. How can I share this information with others right now and in the future? So back to training, uh, none of us want to tackle something that we think we're going to fail in. I mean, that's just sort of a built-in human nature where we're afraid of failure, and so we we don't venture out. So one of the things that I emphasize in training is repetition. Uh, as a pastor, and this is what I encourage my students to do as well, I believe we need regular training in our churches. For me, regularly means uh, at least every three months, providing something as an opportunity. It might be a Saturday morning, one day uh, Mm -hmm. workshop, here's how you can share a gospel booklet or uh, the three circles approach, you know, just exposing them. And I'll repeat that because we constantly have new people coming in. But to me, the repetition is really the missing element. For example, pre-COVID, I taught the three circles approach as part of my Sunday morning sermon. Jimmy Scroggins, a former student, and I, I shared uh, out of a passage, out of the book of Acts, I was preaching through, and, and I said, here's another way to share the gospel mm-hmm. message, and I put it up on the screen. Now, did I assume that all 200-some people there that day would immediately go out and start using that to share with their family members and friends? No. I mean, they've only heard it once. E- even if it was from a brilliant preacher, they they still <laughs> only heard it once. So, Here's what I did as a follow-up. For the next several weeks, I went to each of our adults and to our youth Sunday school classes, and I taught it again. I took the first seven minutes of class, said, here's how uh, you can do this. And then I told the teacher, next Sunday, you're going to do it. And then each subsequent Sunday, the first seven minutes of class, somebody else is going to share it. You want to talk about people paying attention and doing their homework. Now, because I serve in a Baptist church, I did have two teachers that say, we're not going to do that. And as my dad would say, there are just some rocks you have to plow around. There you go. But but others learned it. And we had one woman who went out in disaster relief with the tornadoes here uh, in Kentucky this past year led three ladies to Christ by drawing the three circles on the back of a scrap of paper from the the tornado. Wow. She learned it because she not only heard it multiple times, she actually had to share it with her class. That's great. Yeah. And I think that's a great point, right? Training, repetition, practical involvement, and just keeping it simple, right? One of the things I'm afraid we do uh, in some evangelism training is we overcomplicate things, which then leads the it leads the student, the listener to think, man, if I don't have everything exactly right, I can't share the gospel. But simple presentations empower people uh, and then let them be creative for whatever the, the circumstance is to really expand on that. Absolutely. And I, I think one important thing, I, I think there's a ditch on either side of this, but some people say, well, I, I don't believe in canned evangelism. I, I just I just want to do however the spirit leads. Well, if they've had no training at all right. in how to share their faith, uh, that their presentation just sloshes all over. I mean, it it makes no sense at all. So I tell my students, I'm going to expose you to various methods, pick a few, 
drill down deeply into those, but I don't know that I've ever shared the gospel exactly the same way twice. I've used the same outline. I've used the same verses, but every person is different. But I have confidence that I can do that because I learned an approach and I learned a method. No, that's exactly right. You know, I, and, and I think that's really helpful. It's like that rule gives you the, the, the markers as you move along. You have to get lost in the conversation or the person asks the question, you run, chase a rabbit. You can find out how to get back because you have the track, you have the outline, the image, something that really brings you back. But you don't, you're not locked to it. That's just that's the guide point. I think that's super, super helpful. Yeah. And, you know, my wife uh, illustrates this. She is a piano teacher, has a studio in her home, has 41 students. When a beginning student comes in, they'll bring in a piece of music they want to play, you know, theme from Beauty and the Beast or something. And Sharon will say, okay, let's find middle C. (laughs) And and she has them work on scales and the students, no, I want to play this. Well, Well, we'll get there. But learning the scales, learning the fingering positions, once you have that framework down, then you can play beautiful music. You can write beautiful music, but you can't just start with creativity. You've got to have something as a foundation from which to be creative off of. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we think about evangelism training and really the, this one, one of the things I really like about the book that you've written, and I know, again, it was kind of technically written for an academic audience, uh, you know, a classroom, college classroom, but really it is so practical in that it gives handles to anybody of any personality, any experience, and then gives you some things to build on. So I really recommend and appreciate you. I'm, I, when I see a book like this, it's, a, it's, it's well done, well written. It's clear that a book like this is a labor of love. It's not something you just woke up one morning and said, I think I'm going to write this book. Well, that's true. Someone asked me, how long did it take to write that book? And and my reply was over 40 years. Exactly right. Uh, like, like the preacher who preached a sermon and someone said, how long did it take you to prepare that? He said over 30 years. Now, the actual preparation of writing this book, uh, I, I wrote most of it in about a year and a half span, but there was 40 years prior to that of doing evangelism, of teaching evangelism, of learning from others, all of that dovetailed into this book. Yeah, and it reads that way. It's just a wealth of wisdom and uh, a wealth of knowledge and understanding. So, and I, again, I so appreciate you doing that. Hey, let's um, let's shift gears just a little bit. You're sure. in Kentucky, and uh, not only are you a professor uh, of evangelism, but you're also a student of revival and a student of awakenings. Um, uh, I think you wrote your dissertation on uh, on revival and awakenings. And one of the real stories that we're seeing right now uh, deals with the awakening revival. I'm not sure what term is the right way uh, in your state, right? In Asbury Seminary, that seems to be uh, maybe catching some some fire in other uh, schools across uh, across the country. I know you visit Asbury. And so kind of as a scholar, as an, as a, as somebody that, that has spent some time looking at it, talk to us a minute about what you, what you see, what's going on, how we can think and pray about revival, great awakening, awakenings, that type of thing. Yeah. First, I, I think it's helpful to define terms. Uh, I think you could put a hundred people in a room and ask them to define revival and probably get 200 different <laughs> definitions. Uh, I make a distinction between three separate things that, that I think are separate but interrelated, and I think it's helpful to look at them in this way. I use the term renewal Mm. to talk about when God works in the heart of one person, Mm. 
one Christian. That's something that can and should happen to us every day. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through God's word. It's the old adage, if you're not as close to God today as you were yesterday, guess who moved? Right. So renewal is something that can and should be the experience of every Christian every day. I define revival as when God gives his manifest presence to a group of believers, not an individual, but a group. That could be in a marriage, in a home, in a small group, in a church, on, on a college campus. And then I define spiritual awakening as when that movement of revival spills out into the broader culture. Uh, we could say it in this way, if a revival happens, everybody in the church will know it. If an awakening happens, everybody in the community will know it. And Scott, one of the great mysteries, I've been studying uh, revival and spiritual awakening for over four decades. Why does not every genuine revival become a spiritual awakening, like what we saw in the first great awakening? Right. There are movements of revival that were genuine. They transformed many believers' lives, but the broader culture wasn't really transformed. That, that's one of those ongoing questions that I simply don't have an answer for. Wow. Well, the, the definitions and the way you're explaining makes perfect, makes perfect sense. When you, in your experience in, in Asbury, what, uh, and you've attended, right? I, if I, understand. I, I was there. Yes. One afternoon. Okay. And so what was your kind of, what's your assessment as a, as a scholar? Obviously I always hesitate to say, Hey, you're an expert in kind of the movement of God, right? Who's an expert in that except God himself, but it is something you've looked at and seen. Can you talk to our listeners a little about your experience and uh, from your uh, from your research and study over the years, what are you seeing and experiencing? And, and then perhaps another question might be, or the extension of that might be, so what should those of us who are outside of this area, maybe seeing seeing things happen around us, hearing about it, maybe wanting it ourselves, what, what do we do yeah. as Christians in response to these types of stories? Yeah, uh, great question. Let, let me preface before I talk about my visit to Asbury, uh, back in the first Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a very helpful book in 1741 called Distinguishing Marks of the Work of a Spirit of God. Edwards had those that were criticizing or, or going off the ditch on either side of it. On the one hand, you had the rationalists, Charles Chauncey and others, who said, look at all this emotion. This isn't of God. Their, their favorite verse is, let all things be done decently and in order. And then on the other hand, you had James Davenport and others who were trying to whip people up into emotion. And they said, the more emotion, the better. And Edwards basically said, listen, emotion is a wash. Mm -hmm. The fact emotion is present or not present doesn't tell us whether or not it's of God. But there are five distinguishing marks every time the Spirit of God is at work. And Edwards based these off of his exegetical study in the book of 1 John. So just briefly, the five are first, Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is front and center. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will bear witness of me. So Holy Spirit's job to shine the spotlight on Christ. So whenever there's a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit, attention isn't going to be on the Holy Spirit. That'd be the spotlight, the spotlight operator in the, in the theater turning the spotlight around on himself. No, you put it on the main character. Second, there will be genuine repentance. Uh, Edward said Satan's kingdom will suffer. Okay. You, you won't just become aware of your sin. You won't even simply confess it. You 
you will repent of it. You will want to get this as far away from you as you possibly can, a, a hatred of sin. Third Edward said there'll be a greater response and respect for scripture, a greater hunger for the Bible. Fourth, there'll be a greater spiritual discernment between truth and error. And then finally, Edward said a new sense of love towards God and man. He, he acknowledged that's rather subjective, but believe that would be a mark of, of true revival. Good. And so as we see that, those, those marks, um, are we seeing that something like that happening in Asbury? Is that what you're hearing? Um, and again, let's, the, the other question would be then, what about the rest of us? Is it something that we just sure. over there or is it something we are allowed to long for, pray for? What, what's, what should Christians do in response to what we're seeing? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I was there one afternoon. This has gone on for over two weeks. I haven't been there for the entire thing. Uh, critics will point to what they see as excess here, their portions, or the fact they don't think there's enough Bible being taught and preached and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I understand all of that. But as we look at Edwards Marks, I, I certainly saw those displayed in the afternoon that I was there. And, and I think others have testified to that as well. It's a reminder that one of the principles of revival is variety. Hmm. The 1858 or 1857-58 prayer awakening, for example, is all often called the layman's prayer awakening. It was not fueled by preaching. It was fueled by prayer. Okay. And, and people that say, well, unless you have sermons, it's not a true revival. Well, J. Edwin Orr, the great historian of revival, who wrote over 30 books on revival, said the 1857-58 prayer awakening was the greatest revival he ever studied. Wow. Had a deeper impact than any other. So, yes, there, the word needs to be present. Does it need to be nonstop expository preaching? No. And I believe in expository preaching. I, I tell students those words are redundant. Hmm. Uh, if, if it's not expository, it's it's not preaching. Uh, so the, the question then, what, what about those of us who aren't there or who can't be there? Well, he, here's the good news. Uh, the Spirit of God is not confined to Hughes Auditorium on the University of Asbury's uh, campus. What, what I hope this news does is causes everyone to hunger for that in their own life. And I think that's why you saw tens of thousands of people coming from all over the U.S., from around the world, mm wanting to be a part of it. There, there's a hunger. Pe people are tired of the politics, of the programs. They, they want to experience God firsthand, sense God's presence. And, and I think that's, Asbury displays that hunger. Well, we, we can do that in our own lives as well. Someone once asked Neil Moody, how do you start a revival? said, it's very simple. You get a piece of chalk and you bend down and you draw a big circle on the floor. Then you set aside the piece of chalk and you step in that circle and say, dear God, start a revival inside this circle. There's no reason that, that any of us cannot seek God wholeheartedly. And I think Asbury has prompted believers all over the world to do that very thing. And that's great. And that's, that's, a, that's I've actually heard that same illustration. In fact, when I was a kid, we used to have annual revivals in our church. And I remember more than one time, the pastor would actually use that analogy. And I remember... Uh, thinking in Sunday school, you give out everybody chalk. Okay, this is where this is where you need to start, and that's a great reminder. I think we are in a moment where we've been the last three or four years in our country, two or three years especially, just to the end of ourselves. Right? I was thinking just this morning, 
reading uh, in Revelation, the church in Laodicea, you say that you're rich and you don't need anything, but what you don't realize is that you're poor, naked, and hungry. If there's anything that we've learned in the past couple of years, it's that we're poor, naked, and hungry, and we really need God. And I think you're right. People are just tired of the same old, same old, and maybe this is a spark in a moment where God can use that to call us to himself, not because we need to travel to the mountains of Kentucky, but because God can meet us right where we are. Amen. So, hey, man, thanks a ton for being with me today on The Scent Life. Enjoyed it very much. Always glad to be with you, Scott. Always enjoy. Dr. Tim Booker uh, is the Associate Dean of Billy Graham School at the Southern Baptist Seminary, also the Billy Graham's uh, Professor of Evangelism, and a dear friend of mine. I see him a couple times a year, and it's always a delight, and so I so appreciate him. We appreciate the book, Invitation to Evangelism, Sharing the Gospel with Compassion and Conviction. If you have a chance, I really encourage you to find a copy of this book. You can get it uh, anywhere uh, that books are sold and uh, be a great, a great contribution to that. Dr. Booker, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. You're welcome.